0: Welcome back to the Rossi Pavilion, my favorite room at the National Arts Center. We had to take a detour off to the uh, Pacific Room, overlooking the mighty Pacific, Uh, but we're back here tonight. About 20 years ago, when I started writing a column for the National Post, one of my colleagues said, You know, I enjoy your column, it's very funny. You take nice shots at everyone, you say this guy's an idiot and this one's a crook and so on, but you never actually just say, I like so and so. And so about uh, almost 20 years later, I think it's, uh, I've I've built up enough credibility in this town, it's time to blow it and admit that I admire Jane Philpott quite a bit. Me admiring Jane Philpott will not save her though if her job ever uh, hits a a speed bump because she's got one of the most difficult jobs in government, one one of the most difficult jobs that ever existed in government, one that was invented for her to handle. She's the Minister of Indigenous Services of the yes. Government of Canada. Uh, it is a challenge every day, and uh, she insists that it is often one of the most rewarding jobs that you can imagine, and she's going to tell us about both parts of that job tonight. Jane Philpott, come on up.
1: How are you? Very well, thank you.
0: Um, Welcome, thank you for joining us. I, your, your staff was very worried that uh, you might not even be able to join us, that would have been a challenge because we're live on TV because of votes <laughs> in the House of Commons, but the House of Commons rose for the summer today. Thankfully. W- w- I wanted to know, what is your state of mind as the House of Commons uh, throws in the towel for, for, another, for another summer, is that well, a relief? Well, I'd
1: say it's a bit of a mixed feeling of satisfaction, having made it through uh, another calendar year, and a bit of relief of the schedule. and flexibility, I'll still be just as busy, but uh, a little bit more time to get out to communities. Uh,
0: You are still fairly new to politics. You had never run for parliament before 2015, uh, and um, you were a healthcare administrator before then. I I often wonder for someone who's who's now into politics so far that it's going to be hard to get out, uh, how how do you find it? What is your sense of politics, and how does it compare to your expectations of the thing?
1: Well, I don't know whether you, anyone who goes into politics really understands what it's like to get there. It's pro- somewhat indescribable, and, and I, I'm sure we all have different experiences of it. But I would say I've been surprised at how transferable the skills and experiences I had as a family doctor are to the political world. It's You're still... Um, trying to, to listen and gather a history, you're still trying to do some objective analysis of what's going on, you're trying to make a diagnosis and then develop a plan. So I feel like my medical training actually slides fairly easily into politics. Um, it's very, very hard work, but um, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to give it a go. Uh, what's question period like for any minister? <laughs> You know, uh, question period is probably not my favorite time of day. Um, it, it's an important part of the democratic process. I think there's lots of room uh, for improvement in what that process looks like. I actually love question period in the Senate. I don't know how many of uh, your viewers have been to question period in the Senate. It's a, quite a different style, there's a lot more time for both the questions and the answers. There aren't television cameras there, which I think helps a little bit, and we really dig into an issue. So I think that has demonstrated to me that actually there are better, better models out there for actually being able to uh, still be critical of what the government's doing, but actually um, give pause for reflection.
0: Okay. Now you represent the riding of Markham? hmm
1: Markham uh, Stouffville.
0: Markham Stouffville. It used to have an even longer name, Markham, Witcher Stovall. Uh,
1: Oak Ridge's Markham was the, was the most recent previous version.
0: Okay, tell me about, uh, pick a town, Markham or Stovall. What are they like?
1: Well, I'll talk about Stovall since that's where I've lived for the last 20 years. It is a wonderful town. It used to be quite small. It has a, a tagline, country close to the city. So we're right on the edge of the Oak Ridge's Moraine and now on the edge of the beautiful Rouge National Urban Park. But on a good day, you can get down town Toronto in 45 minutes. Um, it's a town where, because I was a family doctor there for 17 years, I, can, I go to the grocery store every weekend and always see somebody I know. Uh, they don't ask me about their medical problems as much as they used to, but, but <laughs> it's a place where um, you can really feel at home.
0: Okay. Uh, Bill Morneau last year had a, had a during the whole tax uh, uh, small business tax unpleasantness, he had an event in your riding at an Italian restaurant, and you told me on Twitter it was a pretty good Italian restaurant. What uh, what what's what's good about it? <laughs> uh,
1: lots of things the questions are great. Get harder, oh I'll tell yeah, you right wow, now. yeah, this is great so far. You told me you're going to ask me hard <laughs> questions. Okay, so uh, here's the scoop. It was called Pistagios on Main Street in Stoville. What's great about it is the food, especially the mozzarella balls. <laughs> but uh, What's most great about it is the people who own it, the family who own it. They are charming and uh, welcoming. Um, My my closest friend who happens to be a family doctor is the family doctor for the family. So when she and I go there to eat, there's long discussions about medical. Everywhere I go, you can tell in Stouffville, there are long discussions about medical issues. Uh, But it's got a really warm feeling to it. And when you walk in, you get a hug from the person who's at the door. Okay. Can you give, share with us
0: any information about their tax bill? No. <laughs> I don't.
1: <laughs> okay. I don't know. But they were pretty excited about having the prime minister and minister Borno come for a visit.
0: Um, I, I know that at the time there were parts of the country where feelings were a bit mixed about that. But um, uh, and, and then, um, but I think that's calmed down for now. Um, the other sort of highlight of your of, of your career, or the, the 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 thing that always gets mentioned, is that for uh nearly a decade you uh spent time um in africa in niger yes uh providing health services and stuff like that uh in the 90s um why did you go and what uh what what was that experience like
1: okay i don't it's it's a long story so i'll try to keep it brief uh i had started in medical school taking an interest in international health in part because of some of my Uh, colleagues, other students who had worked internationally. So in my final year of medical school, I spent four months in Western Kenya. And my eyes were open to a world that I had not seen before. Uh, And I came to realize in a way that you can't get through books or media the fact that the world is a very unequal and unfair place and that the kind of health care that we enjoy here is not experienced by most of the world. So I came back from that and did my training in family medicine and tropical medicine and decided that I wanted to spend the first part of my medical career in a place where I felt um, the kind of skills I had were less available. And so we lived in a wonderful little village uh, about 500 kilometers east of the capital city in Niger. And uh, they were amongst the happiest years of my life.
0: And you went back uh, several years later to Addis Ababa for a a, a more sort of short-term project, which was?
1: So, you know, once you've spent some time in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, it's hard to get it out of your system. I um, love the people that I got to know there. Uh, when I became a professor at University of Toronto and realized that actually the way that a healthcare person can be helpful in a less resource setting is not necessarily delivering clinical medicine directly, but actually but through teaching. So uh, I realized that Ethiopia did not have a family medicine program, and I was part of a, a partnership between the University of Toronto and Addis Ababa University, and had the incredible privilege of. Uh, visiting multiple times over a number of years and helping to see the launch of the first family medicine training program in Ethiopia. Okay. Now,
0: how much of, of what you did on those, on those um, uh, missions, those, those, those uh, periods of your life in Africa, how much of that is applicable to what you do as a health care administrator or, how, or, or what you do as Minister of Indigenous Services?
1: I think there are are profound connections to particularly the portfolio that I'm in now. Uh, As I said, I think my experiences in Africa um, were, uh, changed my life um, permanently. And the overriding message was that the world is a very unfair place, that while, um, you know, intelligence. This is to to, to paraphrase a quote of Bill Clinton who once said that uh, as you travel the world you see that intelligence, aspirations, hopes and dreams are equitably distributed around the world. What's not equitably distributed is the the mechanisms, the opportunities, the systemic uh, capacity to give life to those dreams. And so... Uh, I learned that in part through my work in sub-Saharan Africa, but what I've come to spend much more time thinking about right now is that those very same inequities uh, exist uh, in a profound way here in Canada as well in terms of the lack of fair distribution of opportunity and capacity. And my job is uh, in part to work with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis to uh, close those opportunity gaps and therefore the socioeconomic gaps.
0: And in a lot of ways, that job hasn't really changed uh, between your being health minister and being Indigenous Services minister. You've, uh, your your angle on a lot of those challenges is different, uh, but but you you were handling these challenges like from day one as health minister.
1: Well, thankfully, uh, when I became Health Minister, which was a fantastic privilege, and I'm very thankful that uh, the Prime Minister asked me to do that, um, I had some big uh, pieces on my portfolio, including things like assistance in dying and... the cannabis file, and the drug policy file, but one of the big pieces of my portfolio at that time was the First Nations Inuit Health Branch, which was at that time a part of Health Canada. So when the Prime Minister asked me to move into this new portfolio, I was very grateful that uh, he said that at the same time as we opened this new department, that we would bring over the First Nations Inuit Health Branch to be part of the new Indigenous Services Department. So some of my old job, I got to hang on to.
0: Okay. It's an interesting thing about this government. It talks all the time about the middle class and those working hard to join us. But a lot of the most intractable uh, social challenges that any government is going to face are long-term homelessness, long-term poverty, uh, chronic disease, um, uh, challenges facing people who can only dream of joining the middle class at some point. Uh, And that's been a large part of your own uh, professional preoccupation since you moved to town. Um, Talk about that, I guess, a little bit.
1: Well, you're right that one of the uh, overarching messages of our government is our uh, commitment to making sure that we grow the middle class. And the way you grow the middle class is, uh, in large part, by uh, finding the less affluent and figuring out what it will take for the, for those people, those Canadians, to join the middle class. And it's some of the things that I talked about is... is Um, giving access to those kinds of opportunities. So uh, our focus on addressing uh, these social inequities that exist in um, multiple portfolios, of course, Minister Duclos is working on things like homelessness and uh, our new national housing strategy, which is great. Um, But there's no question that Amongst those who have faced the most severe economic disadvantage in this country for a very long time, uh, one needs to look no further than to indigenous peoples. And uh, while um, Minister Bennett continues to deal with a long term relationship, my portfolio is specifically looking at what are those day-to-day life issues that will allow Indigenous peoples to much more, in, in much larger numbers, be part of the middle class and be able to have the economic advantages that every Canadian aspires to.
0: Okay. There are all kinds of ways to talk about the uh, your assignment, whether it's your mandate letter or the, the, the organizational structure of the department, but I thought I would ask you about a name that comes up fairly frequently in speeches that you give as you, as you talk to groups around the time. That's Eileen Cooney Lucy. I think the name will be familiar to, to you and it's a, it's a story that I think more people should hear.
1: Yes, and so uh, this was a story. Her name happens to be in the public uh, sphere because an article was written about her after the time of her death, I believe, by a CBC reporter. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't uh, share her name. But this was a young girl who died right here in the city in Ottawa about 18 months ago now, I believe, um, at the Children's Hospital here in Ottawa. And... It was not known until just a few hours before she died what the uh, diagnosis was, even though she'd had symptoms for over two years, and it turns out that she died of uh, overwhelming active tuberculosis. So right here in this extremely affluent city, in a very affluent province, in a very uh, well to do country, uh, a teenager dies of tuberculosis. But what I often say about Eileen's death is that it was not ultimately the bacteria that killed her or it was the the true cause of her death. Her story is actually wrapped up as you, and it's the subject of an investigation, which will, more details presumably will come out at that time. But in terms of what's on the public record, um, it's the reality of the fact that she, like most of her uh, peers in Nunavut, uh, lived in uh, very overcrowded conditions that she had symptoms for two years which were never diagnosed. There were huge challenges associated with her being able to get to a health a health centre. Uh, when she reached a health centre, like many people in Nunavut, it's likely that she wouldn't have been able to have a provider who would have been able to speak to her in her uh, mother tongue of Inuktitut. Uh, it's, and there are challenges even to get there. So y- you just find in a story like that, it shows you that in this country we have not until now really been seized with the fact that it's unconscionable that Canada's Inuit live with tuberculosis rates that are 300 times the rate of the non-Indigenous Canadian-born population. And this is a disease that has been treatable for generations and that, in fact, we don't have drug-resistant TB in Canada, why have we not ever had the political will to, uh, to, to do what it takes to be able to see that young girls like Eileen don't die of a completely treatable disease, uh, which we should have known about much sooner?
0: It's an extraordinary story and, and, and really quite heartbreaking. And um, the question that comes to mind is, how does a Minister of Indigenous Services begin to fix that?
1: Well, uh, I think, like many things, it takes uh, it takes political will for sure. None of these things happen unless uh, you've got that will. And in this case, it takes the will not ju- of just of the federal government, but obviously for something like tuberculosis, we've got provincial and territorial governments that are involved. But I would say what's even the most powerful in this case is that the Inuit Tepirit Kanatami and its leadership currently under President Natano Obed were completely seized with this issue and we uh, collectively have, have d- determined to take it on. It takes a meticulous organization. Any of these big challenges that we have don't happen wi- by wishing it were better. Um, it takes an incredible plan and therefore we've put together an Tuberculosis Elimination Task Force. It takes uh, resources, so there are, of course, the resources around medication and x-ray equipment and diagnostics, but the biggest cost in something like this is addressing the housing issue and the severe overcrowding that takes place. So, you know, usually if you get enough money, enough uh, ambition, and you have dogged determination to follow a, a, a very detailed plan, those things should come together to see change.
0: Um, Now you got your current job last August 28th, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, How long beforehand were there discussions about uh, uh, splitting indigenous affairs into two departments? Uh, uh, The wisdom of of that kind of organizational change rather than just trying to drive files through the existing department. How, How long was there a run up to that decision?
1: Well, I would say more than two decades, <laughs> if you want to really go back to the, the real story of of the change. Um, there's a fantastic uh, document, which I encourage anybody who watches this tape uh, to have a look at. It's called the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. It's actually, a I think, a five-volume set. It's obviously I don't expect people to read the full five volumes of it. Um, but if people Google Royal Commission on Abro- Aboriginal Peoples highlights, you get a document that's about 70 pages long. It is probably the most helpful document I've read in the last 10 months. Um, Actually, I think I read it before I got this job, but in the last couple of years. Uh, And the Royal Commission, um, some of the commissioners are actually still alive today, but it was uh, done, uh, looked at some of the issues that we're still facing today. And one of the very practical recommendations was this idea of splitting the old uh, Indian and Northern Affairs Department. We talked about that at a group that's called the Working Group of Ministers on the Review of Laws and Policies. <laughs> so we, we like these long names. Uh, and it was a group of my fabulous colleagues who ha- sat around and look ha- have been meeting with people over the last couple of years and looking at the laws and policies and operational practices that are in place in our government that... Perpetuate the uh, inequities that I was talking about. And one of the things we did was to look at the Royal Commission. And the, uh, there were conversations that were had with the Prime Minister's office about some of these kinds of things. And, you know, obviously it's the Prime Minister's prerogative to, to make the decision, but uh, there was a lot of uh, um, uh, positive feedback in terms of trying to follow up on some of those recommendations that were put in a document 21 years ago. Okay.
0: Um- I read your mandate letter again this afternoon. It is long. Uh, even by the standards of ministerial mandate letters, you've got a lot of, 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 uh, of um, uh, requests from the prime minister to try and tick off uh, before, before you leave the portfolio. What's the biggest challenge that you're facing?
1: Hmm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I think the biggest challenge, you know, I would say the biggest challenge isn't directly within my portfolio. So my portfolio, we've sort of, I find things that are easier to work with when I categorize them. I, uh, and so we very early on decided to sort of look at what the priority issues would be of our department. Um, and the, the top priority issues are around child and family services, education, healthcare, infrastructure, and economic prosperity. So once I've got it down to five things, it's easier to kind of make sure we've got a plan in each of those areas. But what's actually underlying how we're gonna be successful in terms of addressing the practical day-to-day life issues on each of those areas um, is not in my portfolio, it's a whole of government job that we have to do. And that is the fact that uh, the reason that the deep socioeconomic gaps exist in this country is because of past government policies and some of which still are in place, uh, including discriminatory policies like Indian residential schools. And that's based on the fact that for a very, very long time, approximately 150 years, Canadians and Canadian governments have denied the rights of Indigenous peoples and had policies that, whereby we wanted to dominate uh, Indigenous peoples. We wanted them to assimilate into our culture um, and uh, essentially um, rid the Indian in the child, for example. I can make a lot of progress on each of my files, but unless we collectively, as a government and as Canadians, wake up and recognize and affirm uh, the rights of Indigenous peoples to be able to control their lives, uh, to be able to uh, heal their their culture and revive their their spirits, um, I will not be able to be successful. So that's the hardest thing to do. I can't do that myself. That's a... That's an all-of-Canada job. Um, But when we get that right, which will take some time, then all of the other things like, is it right that people should have access to clean drinking water? Is it right that people should have equitable access to education, whether you're Indigenous or not? Those pieces make much more sense once Canadians understand that we have to respect the, the rights of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis.
0: It's interesting because when the two departments were set up, there was a lot of commentary to the effect that your colleague, Carolyn Bennett, is in charge of uh, Crown-Indigenous uh, Crown Relations. Essentially, the, um, uh, the conceptual and philosophical and symbolic piece, and that you're responsible for plumbing. You're the, you're the practical minister. But what you're saying is that you can't do your job without that other stuff. That's right. Okay, why not?
1: Uh, because we've been trying to do that for 150 years, and it's been a, a, an abject failure. Um, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, speaks to that. My favorite uh, of the TRC calls to action. At the moment, I might I'll reserve the right to change my mind on, which is my favorite over time. But at the moment, my favorite is number 18, which calls on all orders of government to acknowledge that the deep uh, so gaps, health gaps, health outcome gaps that exist between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples are on the basis of past government policies including uh, residential schools and that the solution is to to recognize and affirm rights. Um, so wh- wh- as long as you treat indigenous peoples like they don't have the same rights as you and I who are non, I assume you're non-indigenous unless you've got a history that I'm not aware of, um, then, and you continue to, to, to deny those rights, we will never um, be, be able to, as I say, have the, um, the funding that's necessary, but it's also the control that's necessary. So we see what happens when you actually give people control over their lives, which is a, a, a basic human right to self-determination, and it's certainly an inherent indigenous right. Um, we look at examples like education, where about 20 years ago, the Mi'kmaq were uh, affirmed in their right to run their own school system in Nova Scotia. And at that time, just like we see across much of the country right now, the graduation rates of Mi'kmaq kids were far, far lower than other kids in Nova Scotia. But over the last 20 years, they have built one of the best school systems in the country. Federal government has nothing to do with it except to, to provide resources for it. It's entirely designed, delivered, managed by Mi'kmaq for Mi'kmaq. Their graduation rates, as I understand it now, are actually higher than the provincial average in the Mi'kmaq school system. And we see the same thing in all kinds of other sectors. So when, what that proves to me is that when we affirm and support the implementation of rights and give people control over their lives they actually do better and my job is, is uh, unnecessary.
0: Okay. You said that you hope eventually to, that, that your, your department was founded in the hope that eventually it would be obsolete. I assume that's not going to happen like this week. No. Uh, what is, do you have any sense of a timeline for something like that, is there, or is it just purely aspirational?
1: It's somewhat aspirational, but it's actually something that we intend to track over time As we look to see how how more and more educational systems and school systems and child welfare agencies um, are are entirely led by the people they're intended to serve. And we do have a methodology around tracking that in the department uh, so that we will be able to, to, at some point, I think, set a target date, but it's not any time. Very, very soon. In part because there's a broad spectrum of of where communities are at. If you look, like at First Nations, for example, uh, you know there are um, dozens of original uh, First Nations and hundreds of Indian Act bands across the country that are all in very different levels of um, desiring or being ready to entirely be self-governing. And so it will take some time.
0: It's the stated uh, hope of this government that a lot of these different First Nations and and Indian Act bands will will uh, reorganize themselves in larger aggregates so that they can um, uh, take delivery of government services and government funding and 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 deliver more coherently the kind of services that, that their people need. Is that is that something you're making or that they're making prog- process, progress on?
1: Well, the thing about self-determination is that it, it's not determined by people outside. So. Uh, you know, how, in the case of First Nations, how they will decide to um, coalesce or aggregate will, uh, is to a certain extent an organic process that will happen according to the, the, the readiness and the, the, the expectations and the, the, um, uh, the cultural uh, desires of th- that particular group of people. This is not an idea that we invented, of course. Uh, it's something that, that Indigenous peoples have spoken up of for a long time. It's something that the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples speaks to. And I think it's part of what Canadians kind of are starting to learn to wrap their heads around because we didn't, most of us didn't understand that what the Indian Act did by, you know, tearing apart groups of people that belonged together and... And drawing lines around them on the map and then calling them a band, separating them from another band, which was actually part of the same people, that that was part of the damage of what the Indian Act uh, has done over time. But uh, as I say, there, there there are many people who are much greater experts than me at this. I have to... I give a shout out to my colleague, Minister Wilson-Raybould, who, as you know, is a, uh, a remarkable First Nations leader and uh, one of our fabulous cabinet colleagues who has been a real mentor to me in terms of understanding um, what uh, what the, the potential hope for the future looks like. Uh, but there are many, many other smart people out there who I look to to, to teach me, and I'm constantly learning about uh, what the the how we're going to get from where we are to true reconciliation. Okay.
0: Meanwhile, concretely, uh, on a case-by-case basis, it must sometimes feel like it's two steps forward and one step back. I, uh, there's, I want to quote from a speech that you gave last November. I believe in this building, I'm not sure. Um, you said on boil water advisories, or on water advisories generally, uh, that uh, we made a lot of progress. We've lifted 26 of them and there are 70 left to go. Today, you, uh, on Twitter, you said, we have now lift lifted 64 water advisories and there are 74 left to go. That's a higher number than the one from last November. Can you explain how... That's a higher
1: number th- that's lifted, too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's sometimes how I feel when I'm running. It's like <laughs> that 10th that kilometer is just not ever going to get here. What ha- what's happened since last November on that file?
1: Uh, well, I will try uh, not to uh, burden your audience with too many details, um, but... We, as I said, part of how I think we will be successful in our department is to have a meticulous plan. And uh, we, before we formed government, there was not a, as far as I know, and I'm told, there was not a spreadsheet with itemized every single boil water advisory that, that had been in place for longer than a year and a specific plan as to how that would be addressed. Um, We now do have that and we track it very, very closely In every one of those boil water advisories. We know know, what stage in the process they are from design to construction to to testing and training. Um, What ended up happening as we first looked at how big our list was at first, was we began to hear about communities that had boil water advisories that weren't on the department list. And at first we were told, well, some of those are in gas stations or other private facilities, so those aren't the responsibility of the government. But when we looked closer at the list, we realized, yeah, but some of them are in nursing stations or community halls, and surely those are the responsibility of the federal government to support fixing them. And so we made a decision last week, which we announced last January, was that we were going to make our work harder because it didn't seem right to ignore the fact that uh, the list we had originally thought was, was incomplete. And so we added to our list. Uh, so that's why it grew from the very beginning. Um, the, we also realized that as we were trying to fix this list that we had decided upon, if we weren't looking back over our shoulder to realize that there were other long-term drinking water advisories that were being added because we weren't also paying attention to the ones that were at risk of becoming long-term. So we now also have a plan for everyone that's at risk of becoming long-term and that the pace of adding numbers is slowing down and we think that we are actually going more steps forward than we are backward. Uh, And I have said very, very clearly to my department that, Failure is not an option. The Prime Minister has mandated me to deliver on his promise to make sure that all long-term drinking water advisories for public systems on reserve will be lifted by March of 2021. And I need to know if if there's a roadblock or a reason why we're not going to get there, but my absolute expectation is that we will get there. Uh, And in fact, if we can get there sooner, that would be great. Okay. Um,
0: Bit of an Ottawa question. Uh, how much autonomy do you have as a minister uh, vis-a-vis the prime minister's office and what used to be called the Langevin bloc? Uh, do, do, do they check in on you daily, weekly, monthly, or do you uh, are, uh, uh, are you basically running the joint? <laughs> <laughs> and how much autonomy
1: do you have from your deputy minister who I was told might be, might be here tonight? I don't know if my, I haven't spotted my deputy. He may be hiding somewhere in here. But he'll he'll definitely check later to see if I if I behaved myself. Uh, but uh, I have a lot of autonomy. Obviously, everything that we do, we do as a team, uh, and um, you know. I... Much of my work involves the work around the cabinet table on other issues that aren't just within my department, and those, those that work is clearly done in collaboration with other cabinet colleagues and the Prime Minister. But in terms of my particular file, the, we have an incredible amount of autonomy, and the Prime Minister, uh, I believe, trusts me and it, and has high expectations for what I need to do uh, and that I need to let him know when I need his help. And he made that very clear to me from the time that he asked me to do this job was to say, you know, we're going to lay out the what we expect. We're going to trust you to run with it, um, but come back to me where you need help. And I've done that. So on things like... Uh, uh, addressing the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and uh, the issues around child welfare, we uh, learned, realized very early on we needed more money to be able to uh, uh, to fully implement the orders of the tribunal. And so we went to both the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister and said, this is a, a, not an option. Um, we're going to need more resources on this. So that's, uh, I think, a healthy relationship where... Um, I have the privilege of trying to work alongside fantastic officials and a fantastic uh, office uh, in my department, but at the same time, they have my back.
0: Um, Another large file that is a subject of constant preoccupation with you is the uh, child welfare system. Mm -hmm. Uh, The context is a bit ironic. This morning, the Prime Minister took a question about the situation on border states in the United States where uh, uh, parents are being uh, separated from their children and the prime minister said, it's wrong. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it's like for the parents and, and especially for the children. And he said, this is not something we do obviously in Canada. And there, I've seen commentary all day long that says, well actually sometimes it is, or it certainly has been and, and to some extent still is. Children are separated from their parents, uh, as you yourself have said, every single day in, in, in indigenous families. Uh, and that's something you said about trying to change. Um, tell me a bit more about that whole nest of issues.
1: So let me say first of all, just in terms of the prime minister's comments that you know he uh, I, I think uh, was referring to how we treat people at the border um, in terms of our approach to uh, to the separation of children. The Prime minister would uh, absolutely uh, agree with your comments in terms of the, the fact that we do still have the, this terrible overapprehension of Indigenous children. This was an issue that really came to the forefront for me very early on uh, in my um, experience in this portfolio. When I, I think one of the first trips I took as this, in this portfolio was to Manitoba. And one of the first meetings I had there was with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. And they started to present data to me that blew my mind. They showed me their data that in Manitoba, even now, there are over 400 babies taken from their mother every single year. There is a particular hospital uh, in Winnipeg at which almost every single day a baby is taken from that mother. They have a system called birth alerts so that there may be a, essentially a mark on the chart that the mother may not be aware of. Apparently there's uh, currently no uh, obligation that's, that's upheld for her to have been pre-informed uh, that, that she's been marked and that her child will be taken from her. The reason the child would be taken from her may be because she was a child in foster care herself uh, or because she's too poor or because she doesn't have a private bedroom for that baby. I, I was blown away by what I heard and thought this can't possibly be true, that we are actually doing this. And then they started to talk about the fact that in Manitoba, there's 11,000 children in foster care, 10,000 of them are indigenous. And then you start to hear the individual stories about a young woman I met who had had four children taken from her, one after the other. Her dream was to be a mother, and the world was against her right from the start, partly because she had grown up in care herself and never had the opportunity to be built, to be prepared to be a successful mother. Um, So, as I say, this was all in the context of also realizing that we had uh, outstanding orders associated with Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. So, uh, we set about to, I said, this is, you know, we've got to, this is absolutely, um, abominable, we can't, this can't go on, we, have, we should know what happens when families are separated, what it, the damage it does to those children's lives, the damage that it does to parents uh, who will never fully heal if their children are taken from them um and so I, I won't go into all this is something we could talk about all day long uh it's a major preoccupation of our department but we have we did hold an emergency meeting pulled together all the people that we thought had to be part of that we put together a six-point plan i'm we're now looking at um, engaging across the country on the uh, possibility of legislation around uh, indigenous child well-being and I must say that while it's still, I think, horrific and it's still going on, we are also starting to see signs of hope and I'm starting to hear of work where families are being reunified and um, I think this will, it, it, it's one of the things that uh, I think about every single day. Okay.
0: First question on that, is truly the motivation for that system, however misguided or off track it's become, is the safety of children. Are there not families where the child is not safe in that home?
1: That's a good question and you're absolutely right that the motivation for the system is protection of the child Um, and uh, in fact, I always have to be careful that, you know, I don't uh, um, unfairly uh, suggest that the people that are working in those systems nor the agencies that they're associated with are not trying to do very good work but they're working under rules that are not necessarily fair the way the funding has worked until now has been that the only way those agencies can get funded is essentially the more money flows, the more children are apprehended, which is an extremely disturbing incentive. Um, we've changed that and are in the process of making sure every agency knows that you actually can get paid to prevent the apprehension of children. The data doesn't bear up what you're suggesting, though, in that... Um, we take kids away to protect them. And in fact, uh, there is data emerging that actually um, is documenting that in fact children are less safe often in foster care. Um, again, not to generalize, but it, it, there's, there is no proof that, that by uh, apprehending these children at the rates that we are is keeping them safe. And the other thing is that surely there's better ways of addressing our concerns about that child. Surely we should find ways that if there's an aunt or a grandmother who wants to care for that child in their culture and community, we should support that aunt or grandmother. Surely if the parents are, for instance, um, dependent on substances, and for that reason someone's anxious about the baby, well, the the worst thing you can actually do to a person who um, is uh, dependent on substances is to to rip apart from them the the very thing they may love most in the whole world and add to their trauma. Can we not find ways that we could provide treatment for those parents who may have addiction or other health issues and somehow keep that family bond um, with the child, which will, uh, in fact, lessen the psychological pain and therefore lessen the dependency on substances. So there, those sound like I'm trying to describe the thing. those things like they're simple. They're not. But we clearly have to have a whole fresh look at these kinds of issues so as not to to, have to be saying two generations from now, oh my gosh, wasn't it a horrible thing that was being done in the early 21st century when children were being taken away from their parents?
0: And I'm actually conscious that I'm bouncing back and forth between questions about human issues and questions about administrative issues, but they're, they're, they're often hard to dissociate. Sitting here in Ottawa, do you have the kind of uh, um, uh, f- fine-grained tools that you need to, to address these situations on the ground? Uh, child welfare services are administered by the provinces. Uh, each case is different. Can you, can you make appropriate change at this distance from those issues?
1: Well, like I often say when I'm talking to uh, people who are feeling overwhelmed by the challenges that are there, what frustrates people is that systems don't change and that there are discriminatory policies in place. Well, I always say, we're the government. Like, if anybody can fix the policies, we should be able to, right? So tell me what, is, what are the policies that are getting in your way and help me figure out you know, what I can do to change them. The be- I mean, if you don't mind me using an example, Uh, from my past portfolio, (laughs) I look at some of the work that we did on drug policy and having access to um, opioid substitution therapy or prescription heroin, for example, for people who are dependent on substances. And it was when I went to visit clinics in Vancouver who said, your rules are really keeping us from being able to do the right thing to care for these patients. And I came back to my department and said, Apparently we have rules that are really getting in the way of people being able to prescribe the right treatment for these uh, very vulnerable people. And next thing you know, the department finds the person who's writing the rules and we're making regulatory changes and allowing people to get the treatment they need. So that's the magic of government is that, um, you know we need to make that diagnosis as to what the challenge is and figure out who has the levers But if I don't have the levers, I can probably get on the phone and talk to the person who has the levers and gradually be able to uh, address the -the on-the-ground issues that make people so frustrated.
0: See, it it is talk like this, Jane Philpott, that has gotten you a bit of a reputation around town as a strangely decisive minister. Um, (laughs) do Do you ever run into people around Ottawa who have a hard time making a decision? And do you have advice for them?
1: I'm not sure whether I want to answer that question. Um, I sure want you to. <laughs> uh, it's it's. I don't want to imply that it's easy. It's it's not easy work. Um, I guess I uh, maybe being a little bit older. I feel, I feel like my time here is short. And um, I mean, I guess for all of us, we don't know how long our time is in any particular job. And um, I just want to get stuff done. And so, and I think people want to get stuff done, right? We, you know, when I look at my officials in my department who are often heavily criticized, um, not necessarily fairly criticized, um, you know, they too have been under a system that, that suppressed their um, uh, enthusiasm and, and ambitions. But when I look at them and I say things to them, I start, you know, we start talking about housing policy and I have a little bit of a passion around finding a way that we can be able to see that indigenous peoples will someday be able to live in beautiful homes that are built out of the fantastic natural resources that surround them as opposed to the horrific disposable homes that are currently seen on many remote communities. And I start to see people's eyes light up and they say, yeah, that would be great. It's like people just want, people want, they they just need someone that, that will say, yes, we can do this, we can do it together. And then people work so hard, our officials work, work crazy hard, they just sometimes need to know that there's somebody there that will champion them along the way. And um, tell them that you should never be afraid of a new idea, you should never be afraid to experiment, and you should never... Um, Be afraid to test the system as long as your ultimate goals are are, um, honorable. Okay. Um,
0: Another uh, frustration that I imagine you might run into is the um, people are so used to not hearing good news from federal governments on these files uh, and they're so used to frustration on these files that it's kind of assumed it's built into people's assumptions. So that for instance when the federal government buys a pipeline and, uh, and, 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 and announces plans to build, a, to twin that pipeline out to the ocean. You read, uh, just about everywhere, this government has taken no account of the objections of indigenous populations along the way. Um, uh, I assume you don't share that, uh, that analysis and I assume it's a frustrating analysis for you after all the work you put in.
1: The challenge of, uh... Making sure that we have been fair and adequately engaged um, with all the people that, that want to be involved on decisions is, is a huge challenge. Not in any file, I, I'm, gonna, I'm facing the same thing as I say on looking at the possibility of child welfare legislation and how are we gonna make sure, when will we know that we've talked to enough people and gotten enough views? Because uh, there are 1.7 million indigenous peoples in this country. And as one can imagine, they're not homogeneous in their mindset and and opinions on issues. So when it comes to really hard decisions uh, like resource revenue development, you're going to get a range of responses. Uh, But I think we have been working very hard to make sure that um, we've uh, engaged with more people than ever before. I look at something like the cannabis legislation where... Uh, the ministers involved spent an enormous amount of time consulting with Indigenous peoples, and there will continue to be people who will say that we didn't consult enough. Um, but uh, I think we are getting better. It's not, a, it's not a, you know, a matter of having done the engagement or consultation, then it's over and we're never going to talk to you again. It's, a part of, it's about having a relationship and uh, making sure that people know that they can reach us, that they, we are always open to views and to trying to lay down guidelines for ourselves for how we will be able to um, say that we have a- adequately talked to enough people and to make a smart, thoughtful decision to go forward.
0: Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left. And, um, uh, I've been getting questions uh, online and from, uh, from, the, from the room here, things that people want to ask you about. One of them is about your old portfolio. Um, uh, this is the day that we learned that cannabis is going to be legal in Canada uh, sometime in mid-October, not being a consumer I've forgotten the date already, but... Um, um, <laughs> honest. Um, but uh, uh, one of the questions was how does the the legalization of cabinet, cannabis fit into uh, the huge nest of issues surrounding uh, opioid uh, use and abuse and addiction and overdoses. Um, Does one uh, help or uh, aggravate the other?
1: Uh, it's an excellent question and one that, that people ask a lot. And I, as you've pointed out, uh, I'm no longer the Minister of Health, so I, I I don't want to imply that I'm speaking on her behalf. But just because it interests me and because you asked, I'll, I'll take a crack at, at answering that. Uh, there, The work that we did around making sure that cannabis uh, is now going to be legal and is regulated is based on well-documented, evidence-based public health policy that uh, you maximize the education uh, for people who uh, may be interested in using products which are potentially harmful and figure out ways to minimize the harm. But we know that prohibition of Substances, be they alcohol or cannabis, um, is an ineffective way of actually protecting people from, from the harms of these substances. So um, h- how that relates to opioids, there, it, there are suggestions that uh, cannabis um, being available as a legal product will potentially be uh, used instead of more dangerous products such as, as opioids. I don't think that the evidence is clearly there yet, Um, but it's something that I think now that we are going to have a legal product of cannabis, that that will be something that will be studied very quickly uh, in the coming months. But, um, you know, I think these are still, we we have a lot to learn as Canadians, and yet we're also going to be the ones who are now going to be able to be leaders in research around some of these particular questions.
0: A lot of the same activists that you talked about who told you that the rules are messed up, uh, they just about all say um, look if you're going to legalize marijuana just legalize them all Legal, you know, and that way you've got the possibility of providing uh, uh, safe medically safe uh, legally obtained uh, product to people who are going to use it anyway and they won't have to spend the entire rest of their day figuring out ingenious ways to come up with the money and, and break the law to, 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 to feed their addiction this government has said no
1: Well, you can see that we have now successfully uh, been able to work through the uh, legalization of cannabis. It's been a very long road to get there. Um, And it takes time for people to decide that that's the right thing to do. Um, What I will say around substance use in general is that I think we need to do a better job as a country treating addiction um, as a health issue and not as a moral issue or as a crime. And I think there are good models out there that without changing uh, the criminal prohibitions on uh, other types of substances, that you can still look to models where uh, we use... When people are determined, or people are are identified as having a dependency on a dangerous substance, that they can actually get into treatment for uh, opioid substitution therapies that will be safer for them and still realize that this person, through, for whatever reason, um, psychological pain or trauma um, is needs to keep taking a substance and we don't want them to go out in the streets and buy drugs that might be laced with fentanyl. Why don't we actually get them into a clinic where they can get uh, an alternative product that will address their dependency and at the same time deal with the social issues that may have driven their addiction in the first place. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's an all or nothing. I actually think that without going to the root of looking at, uh, at further decriminalization Um, that we can actually look at better ways of approaching addiction and substance use disorders.
0: Okay. Um, Maybe a closing question, we'll see. I'm not not entirely master of my fate here on on timing, but um, I was struck by some language in the Prime Minister's mandate letter to you, uh, where he... uh, almost the first paragraph uh, of the letter, he asked you to leverage the ingenuity and understanding of Indigenous peoples to identify ways to improve delivery that are holistic, community-based, and put the needs of the person first. It's, it's an idea that we don't often hear about, um, which is that the, your stakeholders are not simply an endless list of, uh, of uh, you know, horrible stories and, 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 and policy challenges, that they bring their own Um, genius to some of these uh, issues. Have you had examples of that in your day-to-day work?
1: I could sit here for the next three hours or more and tell you all of the genius things that I've seen in the last number of months. Um, I'm happy to share one or two fantastic things, and you're you're absolutely right that the genius is out there and needs to be harnessed, and I, I The the people who I work with, I wouldn't call stakeholders, but partners uh, in the work that we're doing. Uh, A great example that I love is um, the Métis Nation of Alberta. uh, When I was in Edmonton, showed me a housing project that they had put together to address family reunification and this issue of of, uh, Métis children in the child welfare system. They went to the province of Alberta and said, you know, how much money are you spending on keeping these families apart, essentially, and paying for foster families to take care of these kids? And it's thousands of dollars a month per child that's being paid to have kids in foster care. They said, if we actually developed a system where we would use less money than what you're currently paying foster families, and we took that money and pooled it collectively and brought parents that want to be reunited with their kids back together we could use that money to renovate an apartment block. So they bought a building with eight apartment units in it. They financed it through uh, the uh, Alberta Child and Family Services uh, resources. They actually spent less money than Child and Family Services would have spent to have these kids in foster care, and they were able to... Uh, completely furnish and renovate eight beautiful apartment units and have 24-hour staff that we're we're providing social work and skills counseling and, and therapy for these families. And the families stay for anywhere from one year to three years and relearn to be a family in a place where they're supported and they can seek help and they can get back on their feet again to restart as a family. So we're saving money, we're bringing families back together giving people hope and setting them on their way uh, much more empowered to be successful, both the parents and the children. There are things like that happening all across this country that would blow your mind. I could tell you stories of fantastic housing projects that I've seen. I could tell you about this incredible place at Six Nations where IBM is partnering, partnering with Six Nations Polytechnic on a uh, an academy where kids are getting their high school and college diploma together and they're studying the state-of-the-art technology beside Haudenosaunee Arts and Culture and they're graduating a whole bunch of students who otherwise might not have made it through school but now are going to not only get their high school but their college degree and be some of the most sought-after uh, technical students in the country. So everywhere I go, I see stories like that that I... I'm glad that you're giving me a chance to amplify because there absolutely is hope uh, and there absolutely are, are uh, genius ideas out there waiting to be given an opportunity to fly. Okay.
0: There's rumours of a cabinet shuffle at some point in the next three months. You don't sound like you're scrambling to get out of your portfolio.
1: Well, I, uh, I like to think I have the best job in the country, so um, uh, we'll see. I, I will do as I'm asked to do but uh, I'm really privileged to be able to do this work Uh, I don't do it alone I do it with a lot of really wonderful people so
0: well we're really grateful that you've taken an hour to come and explain it all to us because I know every time your name comes up people have a lot of questions about what exactly is she up to and and so thanks for shining a little light on that and uh, enjoy your summer and I hope a little bit of time off and we'll see you back in the fall
1: thank you for the privilege of being here and thanks to everyone else for coming